Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. So check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code HFPOD for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners. I want to tell you about a sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, they host different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like O'Teal Burbridge, Trouble No More, former members of the band, Milk Carton Kids, Nikki Glaspie, Bill Frizzell, Sean Colvin, and many more. This June, join the Fab Faux, Joan Osborne, John Sebastian, Marshall Crenshaw, and a great group of faculty for the debut of Magical Mystery Camp. This all-inclusive, once-in-a-lifetime music vacation experience in the heart of the Catskills will be packed with nightly performances, workshops, speakers, song circles, open mics, and a lot more. If you're a performing musician at any level, bring your instrument. If you're a music lover, bring your good spirit. It's an amazing experience for individuals, friends, and couples alike. Registration is open, spots are filling up, so check it out soon. And scholarships are available. Check out magicalmysterycamp.com slash helpingfriendly to learn more. You may already know that SiriusXM brings you the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and every mood. Where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, and hundreds of hand-curated music channels designed to fit every mood. Where you get news from every source, where you can listen to the newly launched Fish Radio, in addition to Jam On, Grateful Dead Radio, Pearl Jam Radio, Tom Petty Radio, and many more. Where you can listen to top comedy channels such as Kevin Hart's Laugh Out Loud Radio and Netflix's A Joke Radio and Sports Talk Radio from Barstool to ESPN and more to keep you up to date on the latest news in the sports world. Most people think you need a car to enjoy Sirius XM, but you don't. Subscribe now to listen outside the car on your phone, online, and at home, and get your first three months for just a dollar. And if you're a Fish fan, which you probably are, you can get tour updates and shows being played, which are a good complement to our quick hits. Visit SiriusXM.com slash HFPod to see offer details and to subscribe and start listening today. SiriusXM, no car required.
Hey, everybody. It's the Helping Friendly Podcast. We're back. This is episode 158, which we keep track of the numbers because I don't know why. I'm with Matt and Jonathan. What's up, guys? Hey, now. Hey, hey. It's important for posterity that we know the number. It numbers mean something to somebody. <laughs> Matt, um, it seems like just yesterday we were drinking White Claws on the beach, doesn't it? Ah, uh, yes. Those Stone Harbor days. Stone Harbor days. And it's it's still August, but it feels like summer's kind of over for me. Does it feel like that for you, Jonathan? Or are you still in summer mode? My kids went back to school today, actually. That's crazy. Yeah. So, okay. I mean, I, so I just came from avoiding back to school paperwork uh, into here to record this with you guys. So, thank you. How many? How much paperwork is there, really? Is it like a lot? Because it seems like it should be just signing a form or something. No, no, it's it's every class has a thing. I got one in middle school now. I got one in high school. They get packets and syllabuses. Is that syllabi? I don't know. I think um, so. <laughs> ex- exactly. Well, thanks for so, taking a break from from filling out forms for us and for our and for our audience. Thank you for giving me an excuse to run out of the room. <laughs> um, <laughs> So back in March, we did an episode on the white tape and we said that we were going to go through fish albums. And now that summer tour is over, we're getting back to it for backtracking for an album, which is called, how do you pronounce this album, Matt? Junta. Jonathan? Uh, Junta. Okay. All right. Um, Matt said that the man who stepped in yesterday is not an album. So we're going to be skipping that and moving on straight to... I just I just want to say the man who stepped into yesterday is not an album, but we should come back to it. We should that there's no reason why we shouldn't do an episode on that, but it'd probably be like a five parter and there should be some pantomime and we should get some puppets. Well, and we've got to wait for them to finish up the CD-ROM so that we can coordinate the release of our episode with the uh, CD-ROM that was started 25 years ago. Uh, I think they're still trying to track down the Twyla Tharp dancers to get their uh, segment recorded for that. <laughs> I do have that Schweiss where they mentioned it. Uh, and the puppets thing is a real thing. I saw a guy doing the puppet show at Deer Creek in 95. It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, have you guys ever tried to make a CD-ROM? I bet it's hard. All right, let's kick off with some fish news. Uh, what's going on out there, Matt? Well, we got dates. Dates? Tour, fall tour. And uh, I guess tour is is a controversial word. Um, some people suggesting that maybe seven shows is not a tour. Uh, to, to, for me, tour is in the eye of the beholder. So call it what you will. <laughs> I mean, they're going to have tour buses. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna go around, and people who do some portion of those shows will say that they are on tour. So, uh, <laughs> true, you know. true. It's interesting. I mean, they we asked people, um, you know, what was up with uh, what their takes were, and there's sort of two takes, right? One is like fish shows are cool, and the other is like fish fish doesn't come to my city or region, and it sucks. Yeah, or, so or they don't play enough, right? And so, uh, yeah, I guess that those are the two flavors of complaints. Like only seven shows, what gives? And why aren't you coming to the West Coast? We thought you'd come to the West Coast, but to me, I mean, it seems like when they avoid an area, like they have avoided the West Coast this year, it's usually for some sort of good reason. Um, and so maybe there's New Year's plans there, or maybe they're planning a festival out there next year, or you know. Um, it's funny. I, I was remembering that 
the last time that Fish had a really bad festival experience for everybody, they followed it up by playing out in Indio, and it was like the most comfortable and like one of the best festivals for everybody. So, I don't know, just speculation, but maybe next year we see a return to Indio or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you got to imagine that, you know, of course, Fish cares about us as fans. They care about the business. They are thinking about hitting different areas and making sure that they're hitting different parts of the country. I don't think it's that they hate California or um, Arizona or whatever. They might they might be avoiding Phoenix because of Brad, but um, mostly right right there. So I agree with you. Um, why only seven shows, Matt? You think it's just like, let's just do this over the course of a week and get some shows in? Yeah, it, it's a little weird. Like, um, even by their standards, that is a, a kind of a short run, but maybe they feel like they want to get out there for a quick thing and maybe like three or four shows isn't enough to get hot. Um, maybe there's other plans that we're not aware of that are that are going to unfold, you know, around New Year's. Or I know one of the, the rumors that was going around was that they're going to play some show for Fish Radio at the Apollo Theater. Um, so maybe that's mm-hmm. we're going to see something about that. And maybe they wanted to build some shows around that so they're not just doing a one-off um, I don't know. I mean, it's up to it's it's uh, we usually have to wait and figure out like what the master plan is as they you know drop these things out one little bit at a time. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's something more to it for sure. And we'll, we'll see in the in the weeks to come, whether it's uh, New Year's, something different on New Year's or, or like you said, building around something else. So um, seven shows, kind of like a, a mini island tour in reverse to start. Right. The two nights at the former Providence Civic Center. Um it's sort of a reliable fall tour stop, 90, 94, 95, 98, 99, last played in 2010, but um, two nights there. And that's that's kind of a, it is like a classic fall tour stop. For sure. And then they go to Nassau Coliseum, the, uh, the renovated Nassau Coliseum, which they have not played in any form since uh, the Turkey run in 2003, right? Yeah. And only, you know, it's so interesting. There's only been three runs there ever <laughs> you know 98 99 and 03 for such a storied venue in, in fish history it's just funny that there there actually haven't been that many shows there but yeah um all it takes is one. almost almost all of them have been awesome so um i was watching uh like espn that was on at a restaurant last week and i saw this story about the renovated nassau coliseum because the islanders are playing there and i was like man fish should really go back there it's just funny that that was like last week and now here we are um but only one show and then a f- couple days in between and then uh, going to Pittsburgh. That was the only, I think the Peterson event center. It's the only time they played there was that pretty awesome pre Baker's dozen show 2017. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, and then, and then down to Charleston. Yeah. Three nights. So this is, this is pretty interesting. I mean, they've played a lot of shows at this place. Um, in multi-night runs in 2010 and 2016, um, and, and shows in, in 95 and 96 as well. So some history there, but what, what's the story with getting to Charleston? If it, taking out anything going on with new year's or whatever, is it getting closer to Atlanta, getting some Southern Southern exposure or, uh, or what, what do you think it is about Charleston that would, that'd make this an appealing place to do three nights? I think it's a good destination for a lot of people. Um, I've never, I've personally mm-hmm. never been to Charleston, but I know people love it. Um, it seems to be a great place to vacation. Um, Paige's dad lived there uh, before he passed away. So I think that was probably part of the allure for them playing there. And then I think it was just one of those places that like once they did it, um, people really dug the venue and the town and everything like that. I think it's one of the venues where like the whole thing is GA. Um, so, you know, yeah. kind of a cool place to go. Um 
Are you in the home of the home of Andy Greenberg and Runaway Jim? <laughs> that's right. Um, that's you right. know, probably part of probably part of this. Yeah, but yeah. Good point. Destination, like just like Mexico and and other stuff to lesser degree. Vegas, kind of building it around uh, experiences. Yeah, exactly. Are you um, are you thinking about going to any of the shows? I don't know. I think I might do Pittsburgh because um, it's sort of a. I feel like I could go there for a night. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty up in the air about everything. Um, do, I I don't know if you. This is the same for you. But having kids, ironically, weekday shows are much easier to pull off because of usually having school or childcare or things. So for parents like me, in me at least, it's easier for me to pull off a Wednesday show than like a Friday, Saturday show. But um, we'll see. What about you? Yeah, kind of the same. I think I'm not, I'm not planning on going to anything, um, mostly for childcare reasons. I mean, we've got like, I mean, it's not too ridiculous to travel to, you know, Pittsburgh or Long Island, um, or even, I mean, Providence or Charleston, I mean, they're, they're not that far away. Um, it's more just, you know, I'm probably going to need, uh, to, you know, cash in my childcare chips with my parents or whoever would have to watch our daughter, um, for new year's and, and then definitely for Mexico, um, in February. So, you know, if I think probably the same thing, like if it wound up being convenient and I could get away for a night to go to Pittsburgh or something like that, maybe try to do that. I would love to go to Nassau Coliseum because, um, I wanted to check out the, the renovated venue, but it's, it's, I think that's like a Sunday night, isn't it? And it's like right after Thanksgiving. So yeah, I don't know about I that. I think for, you know, for, for people who are either visiting family on the East coast up there, you know, up Northern East coast or, or live up there. I mean, a Friday, Saturday, Sunday doing, you know, Providence, Providence, Nassau. That's a pretty sweet little uh, three night, three night run with some travel, of course. But yeah, that should be pretty good. Good way to start off. Yeah. Um, so everyone fish just, you know, bands out there, including fish, but others remember it's easier for us to go to weekday shows. So um, if you could just, you know, play more awesome shows on Wednesdays, Matt and I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess what else do we have uh, going on in the world right now? Um, weekend Wook at Weekend Wook on Twitter is doing this, uh, does increasingly ambitious um, brackets of different jam band and music related things. And it's kind of like, this is bringing the whole thing to a head And this. I don't even know how many songs started out with, but we're in like round four of this jam bracket and it's, uh, it's taken the internet by storm, but it's so cool. All this, he's put a ton of work into this stuff and it's funny watching the reactions when it's like watching sports, except nerdier and in a very small corner of the internet. I want to say thanks to everybody for um, all the responses to the survey we put out there. We got some awesome uh, responses and and we're looking through them now. And um, on a personal note, I've been, so as of July, I'm I'm now full-time helping to move this company called Osiris along. And, And that's partially because everyone who listens to this podcast and others, you know, trusted us and, and looked at other podcasts like the Broke Down podcast and No Simple Road and Road to Now and many others and spread the word and we're growing and it's thanks to people who are listening to this podcast who are like, hey, yeah, I'll check out some of these other shows and spread the word to their friends and helped us along. So it's pretty fun um, and I don't know, it's just cool. So thanks everybody for all the help that you've uh, given us. 
All right, so Junta, uh, first kind of official album uh, that Fish released. Uh, we talked about the white tape, but that was kind of more of like a demo. Uh, we had talked about how they really mainly put that together to book gigs, um, have something to circulate to promoters and stuff. But Junta was the first kind of proper album that they recorded uh, down in uh, Euphoria Studios in Revere, Massachusetts in 1988. And um, it's... Uh, it's amazing to me when I look at it, like I'm trying to think of another artist where like such a core foundation of their material that became like part of their legacy was all on one album. And I think when I think about Junta, that's, that's kind of what I think. Um, a lot of people talk about how like the first album is so easy for many bands because they've had years to, to stockpile material. And it's such the, the case in, in, in with Junta because I mean, they really had all these live staples that they've been working out at Nectars and Hunts for years, um, you know, uh, ready to go and, and ready to, to bang out in the studio. Yeah, but some of this really only takes proper full shape here on at the time they're making this record. Um, we'll get into some of them as we go, but, you know, some of these pieces, uh, some of these songs really kind of coalesce here with this record. And, um, yeah, it's... It is it is formative fish. A lot of the notes I wrote talking about this, uh, this is this is you know their foundation. This is their DNA. Is this album? So they they record this. They get it out uh, on their kind of self release that they're selling at shows. Uh, it comes out on cassette initially, um, and then it, they do a release, I guess, to uh, to stores in uh, nineteen eighty nine. Um, later in nineteen ninety two, when they signed to Electra, it would be remastered by Bob Ludwig. This started the beginning of a relationship with Bob Ludwig that um, still kind of lasts until today. He's mastered pretty much every one of their albums, and. Um, they they recorded a picture of Nectar at that point, and Electra put out uh, Junta and Lawn Boy at the same time. The crazy thing about this, of course, is that um, the core ten tracks that are on this stretch past the the, uh, the length that a single CD could hold um, because it had kind of been prepared for cassette, which which could hold a little bit extra material. So they have to put the last couple of songs on a second CD and they fill it out with live filler, which is kind of funny to me because that's something that a lot of people would do in, in tape trading circles. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when I look at this, to me, the album Junta is, um, is those 10 tracks. I, the bonus tracks are okay. And we'll kind of talk about this later, but I, I kind of consider that to be not sort of, you know, essential, an essential part of the album or, um, not not uh, not canon, if you will. Now, I admit I didn't buy this cassette when it came out because I didn't listen to Fish in 1989. But I bought this CD when it came out. I had the long box with the uh, the large format Pollock art on it, and those tracks were a part of it. And yeah, they were added as filler at the remastering process. But this is the form that most people got when they got to this album. Yeah, I'm sorry, Union Federal, Sanity, Iculus, they're a part of this album. And they really, they belong with these tracks because they really kind of round out that picture of Fish's DNA that I'm going to keep bringing up as we go through this. I agree. I, I, I didn't know this album without those tracks because I got it in 1993 or whatever. And it yeah. was just part of the deal. But... Um, it is interesting that the that the vinyl came out without them. Um, all right, guys, can we talk about the name though first? 
it, am I like because I I called it Junta for a long time. Did you, Jonathan, or did you never? Because you're just too good at music. Um, I'm not into politics, so Junta didn't mean much to me when I was uh, you know 18 years old. So uh, Junta sounded good, and then I heard that's what it was, and I kept going with it. Matt, I don't I don't have any great story behind it, but we used to call it Junta because I found an article, an interview with uh, Ben Hunter, who's the guy that this was named after. Right, that was his nickname, and he was the band's first first road manager, I think. Um, and he was interviewed in 2000, and he said that um, his nickname. This is a quote, by the way. My nickname involves a long and mysterious story whose origins I'm not at liberty to discuss. However, I say it, Junta. Most of my friends and relations say it that way too, as does the band. <laughs> With the exception of Paige, who says it, Junta. So you've heard it here first. Fish's first album is called Junta, not Junta, as I've often heard it referred to. So there you go. And that that is now that is now dealt with. Um, so I'm going to keep calling it Junta, and um, we'll move forward. <laughs> Matt? Well, for, so first off, let's, let's talk about... Um, we were talking about the releases. Uh, so the, you had the cassette release originally. You had the Electro release in 1992, um, which, once again, I mean, if you're going to look at it that way, a very, very long debut album uh, for, for a band. I yeah. mean, what other bands have... I'm struggling to think um, a, a debut album that long. I know, like... Um, Kamasi Washington put out that crazy long album for his first one, but who else do you guys think of? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think it's uh, that big a deal. Um, people were putting out two LP CDs, two LP CDs, two CD releases, uh, a lot more commonly in the late eighties. And, um, once they decided they could use the entire CD format, people were really pushing it. And a lot of people were coming over from tapes as well, just as, fished it with this so i don't know but for case but for a debut album uh i'm not sure anybody's keeping those stats but Uh, someone is whoever's listening and you're you if you're the keeper of the stats let us know because we got to know there's got to be some prog rock thing or some goofy thing that's like two hours but I, i think i generally agree with you matt that's pretty uh it's pretty rare to see. So, first of all, th- thanks to I want to say thanks to Fish.net and the Fish Companion because I got a lot of great info from there, as always, including that interview with Ben Hunter that I referenced earlier, um, which we'll link to. Um, do you guys, should we get into the songs? You guys th- think about albums probably more than I do. So, I don't know what you guys think, but it seems like Fee is like a really interesting opener. Maybe, Jonathan, I think you in your notes referred to it as like, Maybe they were trying to, to lead off with a pop pop song here with Fee. Well, I put pop in some sort of quotes because it's not exactly pop, but it's uh you do want to lead off with a catchy tune. That's you know album construction one on one. Your lead off track should be something that grabs the ear, and you know it's fish. So the the lyrical content is maybe a little out of the ordinary, but it does have a great hook, total sing along potential. And, uh, you know, despite the, the wordiness in the verses, which, you know, trips Trey up even now, uh, certainly, I mean, this was the first, first fish song that I learned to play on guitar because I was a very terrible guitar player in the early nineties and I could, I could work on this one. Um, yeah, it's, Fee is such a great tune. I love it so much. It's a great opener. All I could hear when I was listening back to this in prep for this was the piano, just like on, on almost every track and i think it just seemed like 
they were really happy to have like all those instruments and all the, and, and again, like the production, it just comes through so clearly. Uh, Matt, what, what do you think about fee? Do you still like, do you like fee live? Did you like this, this version better than now that you've gone back a few times? Yeah. I mean, um, it's a great song. I always love hearing it live. The thing that sticks out to me with this track, as with a lot of the tracks, um, particularly when you get to the, we talked about kind of briefly mentioned the vinyl reissue that came out uh, a few years ago, um, which as with everything in the reissue series was cut by Chris Bellman out at uh, Bernie Grunman mastering. Um, he got this, this was uh, mixed to analog two track. And the, the thing that stood out to me the first time I, I played this, my impression of the album before this, whenever I listened to it on CD was that it was not a particularly great sounding album it sounded kind of low rent recorded in maybe a cheap studio which you know is not that surprising for a band you know making their first record on a shoestring budget um a lot of other jam bands in particular that kind of self-finance this stuff and put them out on Mm -hmm. indie labels or whatever um similar kind of just very thin sound you can tell that it wasn't recorded in like the most professional of studios Mm-hmm. Even with uh, Bob Ludwig's mastering, I was never in love with it, um, and so I didn't listen to the album that much. When this version came out, which uh, you know you've, I've got the, the the LP, and then they also put out a high res digital version at the same time. The first time I played this, the kick drum at the beginning of it just leaps out of the speakers. It's maybe one of the best kick drum sounds I've ever heard, and that begins this journey of kind of realization that this is actually an unbelievably well-engineered album um and whatever chris bellman was able to do i don't know if it's just a flat transfer and the the other masterings were, were not great or if with some eq and stuff he was really able to, to bring the life out of it but um it's 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 honest to god one of my probably best sounding records it's like reference material that i i play for people all the time um when i want to you know show off my system a little bit and it starts with his kick drum and then the thing that i was kind of sticking out to me as i was re-listening is all of the percussion that's kind of sprinkled throughout this um you know there's a uh, garo there's a a vibra slap there's triangle on it um just kind of peppered throughout that really gives it this lively sound um you'll probably hear me mention that in a couple of other songs too but just those little things that they throw through in uh, that they were able to kind of expand on their live arrangement um, just really stick out uh, to, to me throughout the whole album. just like the word vibra slap just wanted to say that real quick it slaps okay. well so matt <laughs> no. when i was when i was saying i thought it sounded good do you think that the version i was listening to which was on like live fish the live fish app or something is like one of the newer versions because i thought it sounded so good but am i hearing a different version than the one you're referring to live fish has both if you check it out of course uh, compression for your app and whatnot yeah. but they have the uh ludwig version which has the extra tracks and they also have the remastered edition on there so okay you can check okay. that out first of all the this the kind of reissue stuff you guys are referring to kind of changes the whole way that everyone listens to it also the way we're talking about it now you know what i mean um it's not yeah, like an we, album that just came out last, you know, in the past couple of years that we have one version that to refer to. There's like 
so many different. I didn't know there were this many versions, which is cool. It, when we decided to sit down and do this the other day, I was like, "All right, I'm all the record I was listening to ended. I got up and pulled out and, and put it on uh, the LP, and you know was immediately absorbed into it. But then I went to the digital versions and live fish and stuff. Uh, you know, listening on the trains, it's there are differences. You can definitely hear them. I don't think Matt's crazy or out on any kind of limb with this. Uh, I think the remastering does sound really nice. Um, and speaking of listening to this thing on LP, my son walked in just after I put it on. He's 11 years old and immediately started dancing to You Enjoy Myself, um, which is the next tune on the record. And so if I may jump us ahead into Please. that. Um, I, I wish I could remember the first time I heard this. I mean, this thing, it's, it's, it's the prototype of what have, you know, 1800 different live performances. Really, you look to this one to know the deliberate and intentional structure of the song, which they then throw out the window regularly. Um, you know, uh, it's one of a handful of songs that could not be any more fish, and several of them are on this record. Um, and it, it's a weird composition. Let's just be frank. Let's just take this in context of its time. Where do you find, first of all, who writes this? And then beyond that, where do you find a band that is willing to commit to this kind of music in the 80s? This is the year that Rattle and Hum and uh, Tracy Chapman's debut album were big hits. So they could not be any further from the market with this material. I mean, the whole album has like nine songs over 25, uh, excuse me, nine songs. I'm saying this all wrong. Uh, It has five songs that are over nine minutes. Uh, Even the Grateful Dead's big hit album that came out the year before didn't crack those numbers uh, with duration. It's just bizarre, and yet it works, and it sounds beautiful. And yeah, obviously I'm a fan, so I will continue to gush, but I'll let you guys jump in there. (laughs) Well, I just, I want to say just the the recording of this, so to get a nine minute and 50 second, you enjoy myself, like recorded in the studio with all the intricate guitar, I mean, intricate every instrument, that must be like a hell of a lift, Matt. Do you think? I mean, like, because nine minutes and fifty seconds—it doesn't seem long to those of us who go to fish shows. But like that—it's a complicated song with complicated parts, with tons of stuff happening. Um, is that something that's like a huge effort just to get laid down? Do you think? To a certain extent, I mean, in the studio, it can almost be easier because you can punch in. Um, and you can correct things and you don't have to do it all in one take. Um, mm-hmm. If you're recording in, in, to analog, which they would have been, um, it makes it not quite as easy as, you know, if you're in the digital realm and you can just do a million takes of something so easily, like you got to rewind the tape and you got to punch in at the right time and everything like that. But they they could make some corrections uh, along the way. Um, but to that, to that end, Yem is the first of a bunch of songs on here where I am surprised how slow the tempos are um, especially given how fast they were playing live at the time and how they would mm-hmm. over the course of the next like four or five years they would kind of start playing a lot of these songs faster and faster and faster and here you have you know maybe the slowest yem ever um, 
<laughs> no, starting out with those arpeggios at the beginning, they bring out Paige's organ a lot, and it gives it just that circus music kind of feeling, um, which I really like. The the boy man god shit section, um, I, I've talked about this in the past, but when I go back and I listen to Early Fish, I'm reminded how much they were sort of chasing Zappa's sound, particularly the vocals, like the way that Trey sang back then was very, very Zappa-ish, and I, and I kind of hear it there. Yeah. Um, and then I was surprised when we got to the end, uh, I always forget about the finger snaps at the end, which are a little, maybe a little lame, but and kind of funny, but just surprising given that, you know, I guess they had to end it somehow. They're not going to do a vocal jam on the record, but it's always kind of funny. But yeah, when they go into that, there's like that effect that gets them into the finger snaps, which reminds me of like the very beginning of Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, it's you like know, a it's it like a reverse piano, like a reverse piano chord or something like that. Yeah, yeah, which is just funny because Dark Side of the Moon was however many years before this, and they're like, yeah. let's just use that thing and get some finger snapping. Um, yeah, really amazing. I mean, again, like the to me, like the going back to this, I just kept hearing the beautiful addition of piano because if you if you listen to live shows from this period, which we all have to some extent, you just hear Paige on his like little toy keyboard, you know. Um, so to me, the contrast yeah. is like so clear, which is really cool. And it seemed like they were taking advantage of having access to a bunch of cool instruments. Um, but the man, it is, I mean, I think you're right, Matt, the, the, the tempos are slow. I think like the really fast stuff started maybe in like 90, I mean, by 91, they were like playing everything super fast. They were doing it in 89, too. Uh, we did a, a May 89 show, one of the first times I was on here, and they were just shredding. It was, a you know, from a party, but, you know, this was... I think there's just a difference between what they're doing live and in the studios, the deliberate mm-hmm. decision to slow it down, let it breathe. Actually, not even, not even so much letting it breathe, but slow it down and nail it, as opposed to, you know get the muscular, you know, drive that, uh, that really gets an audience excited in a live show. They, they played to their audience, which in this case is the tape. I think they, they really readjusted their, uh, intent here. And there's not like a lot of history of the recording of this album that are, that's out there, you know? I mean, of course, not as much as some of like the famous albums that we've all watched documentaries about or whatever, but there's not a lot of conversation that I've seen about the recording. So we don't really know what they were. seems like they probably just went in and tried to get this stuff on record, but I do wonder how much they were thinking about the things you're describing, Jonathan, you know, um, how much of it was intentional like that, you know, I'd love to ask them someday. Someday. If you have answers, come on our podcast. Yeah. I seem, I seem to recall seeing like at least a picture and maybe a short video snippet at some point of them recording this. Maybe it was in like one of the um, anniversary video montages they did or something like that. I have a pretty pretty clear image in my mind and like what the room looked like and stuff like that. But I think, you know, once again, they had the material and it seems to me like they went into the studio with a great focus on how do we lay these down and have them sound as great as possible with, you know, a little bit of kind of, you know, ornamentation that's not there that we don't have live um, to to expand it, which is probably what you would do in, in recording a first album. Um, but yeah, to your, both of your points, I'd like to hear a little bit more about like where their heads are when they were recording this, how long it took, stuff like that. Yeah. 
if anyone wants to come tell us about that, you're, you're welcome anytime. Um, Matt, Esther, do you like Esther? I love Esther. I'm a, I'm a huge Esther fan and I'll, I'll tell you where, where my love comes from. Um, I wasn't originally, I didn't get the song the first bunch of times that I heard it. Um, and then I had this experience and I've had this with a couple of other songs. Jonathan, you'll appreciate this. I had this experience also with, um, Mississippi half step uptown Tulu, um, (laughs) where, where I didn't dig the song and then I fell asleep listening to music and I woke up sometime later and this song was on in the middle of it and it was like as I was coming out of my dream state I heard this music and it just made sense to me and that happened with Esther um, where I, I was put on some show I nodded off took a nap or something like that and I woke up and I didn't even I couldn't even tell what song I was listening to but it was just like the most perfect music and I ever I just kind of you know latched onto that that feeling um so I I really love it I, the circus music thing continues here just like I said with Yem um you know it's kind of freaky circus music and um as far as Trey written lyrics I actually think this is one of Trey's best lyrics I really love the um the, the structure and the story and the, the rhymes that he puts together. Um, so um, I, I obviously love it. Uh, Jonathan, what do you think of, uh, of Esther? I, I love it as well. I didn't have to sleep to it to come to that, but you know, we all have our own roads <laughs> to walk. Um, but yeah, any good story begins with a new papa, right? Um, I was, it was the story that drew me into this one uh, as somebody who's always liked a good story song, and this one really is. Uh, but then the music really like carries me off, and um, I think one of my favorite parts is the, you know, the the solo at the end is really great. All the composition is great, but I really love the solo in the middle where Trey's just doing this very subtle thing of like I think he's just rolling his volume knob to like defeat the attack, so he has the knob down, hits the note, and then rolls it up so it's kind of swells in. Um, you can do it with a pedal, to expression pedal too, but I've done it with a, a guitar, just rolling the, the volume knob. And anyways, it, whatever, however he's doing it, it sounds gorgeous, just beautiful. That volume swell thing uh, is very, very Steve Hackett, uh, early Genesis. Steve Hackett did like did that all over uh, The Land Lies Down on Broadway and some of the early Genesis material. I'm, yeah. I'm positive that's where Trey got it. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, soaring soaring solo at the end is just so great. It's an awesome way to, to end the song. And um, I, think the, I think the album version is one of the best, you know, in terms of capturing everything. Um, especially like the, the, the angry mob of joggers in the middle. There's just like, there's a lot of funny stuff going on there. And, uh, it was, yeah, it's great. Um, I think I remember this song more clearly than some others in terms of getting into this album, probably cause it was just so strange, but that's, that's <laughs> kind of the whole point, right? Like awesome guitar solos and really strange 
strange lyrics and strange sound effects. Um, Golgi. Status. <laughs> <laughs> I love that backing vocal. <laughs> yeah. Um, the the subject matter of this lyric and that that sound of that status vacuum vocal you know is all you ever need to know about the nature of early fish it's uh, nerd songs with nerd music made by nerd guys um <laughs> obviously there's more to them obviously than that as we all well know but you know it's definitely a key component and uh also the instrumental break in this is as fish as fish gets like you if i played you that break i could say this is fish and you know, I would be right. I would be right. That is everything. Matt, I think you had some thoughts on that too. Yeah. That, I think that the instrumental break, that middle section, I think that's probably my favorite 40 seconds on any fish studio album. I could just listen to that on a loop. And, um, I want, I, I, I think, I feel like there's an alternate universe in which on jam night at the Baker's dozen, they got to that and they just took that part out and just jammed it for 20 or 30 minutes. Cause it's so gorgeous. And, um, one of Trey's most beautiful uh, guitar lines. I mean, it's, yeah, it's so good. It's a great, um, <laughs> the status, the backing vocals are just great. I was wondering when I was listening to it, like, you think the lyrics were written with the intention of like, it's going to be awesome when we're rock stars and we can just yell about people holding stick ticket stubs and like, this there'll is, be tens of thousands of people just going absolutely nuts. This is one of those songs that Trey wrote with, uh, some of the, the Taft day school or what friends in the way, way back long before fish was even an inkling of a thing. Um, but I still, I, I, I hear that jam or that jam, the composition in the middle of Golgi. And it just strikes me as like, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense inside what sounds like a, a attempt to write a rock song for nerds. Um, cause it, cause otherwise it kind of rocks, but we're singing about biology. I don't. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. No, but I think they, I went to that class. I think he. I think Trey knew. I think. I mean. I think from what I've heard, at least Trey wanted to be a rock star from you know the time he was, you know, ten or twelve. So he probably that probably is why he wrote it. It's awesome to think about, and it works. It worked. It all worked yeah. out fine. Yeah, I mean, you can get uh, twenty to seventy thousand people, depending on the location, screaming that along with him. So, that's probably pretty gratifying, I would think. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you might be surprised to know that I've never done that. No, um, but but I'm working on it. I'm actually <laughs> working on my own my own Kogi, which I, I'll play for you guys at some point. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll tack that on to the end of this episode for you guys at home. <laughs> Bonus track. <laughs> Bonus track. It's going to be on the, uh, on, on the CD reissue. It won't be on the LPs, though. 
I'm actually making it. Yeah, it's the CD-ROM is actually taking a while, so we'll see when it when it mm. finishes up. <laughs> um, so then Foam comes next, which man, this uh, this song is the album version reminds me again how intimidating of a song this must be to play, regardless of whether you're Trey or any member of the band. It's just a really intense intense song, but they they do it pretty well here. Yeah, these uh, fugues and things are wicked crazy. And I say wicked because of, you know, it was recorded in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, But also slower than any live performances of the era. But it's just so precise. And um, I don't know, you know, maybe I don't... I definitely want to see foam, but maybe I'd rather they just like... Spread it out, practice it, get it right. I don't know. Um, when I hear this, I just think that um, a, a foam that doesn't hang together the way this one does is just maybe maybe we shouldn't hear it. Maybe we just want to leave this one in the vault. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm arguing against them playing foam, which I, I really don't <laughs> agree with. Also, so <laughs> well, I, I see that. I don't matter what you think. I don't. I think the last awesome foam I saw was. Uh, March 1st, 03 in Greensboro, which was really, it was more about the, the jam really than the composed part. So I don't know, Matt, is Jonathan, is Jonathan right? I, I think, I think there's something to it. Um, you know, once again, super slow tempo, maybe the slowest that this was ever played in 1.0, um, which I don't usually have a big problem with. I would say that I think one of the things that made foam amazing in like the by like 94 or so when they were playing it like crazy was the speed at which they could execute it. Cause it is such a, it's a very, very difficult piece to play, which I think is why they don't play it a ton now and why they do play it slower now when they play it. Um, but it loses a little bit of the excitement when they don't play it as live where you just are like on the edge of your seat, seeing if they can, um, if they can hold it together. Um, Jonathan, I will correct you on one thing. This song is not a fugue. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just listen to music. I haven't uh, written it in a while. <laughs> but it is insanely complicated, um, which actually probably makes it more difficult because if it was a fugue, you'd have these lines that you could follow that they all start one after another. Whereas this is just like crazy elements where like they're playing together for a couple bars and they break off and they do complementary pieces and stuff and very, very tricky to remember, very tricky to get right in a live setting. Um, probably one of their most difficult pieces to to play so, yeah i i don't know how they ever science this one together and yeah the uh the mid 90s versions were insane and paired with a runaway gym so you could catch your breath and then get a great jam would uh you know always always for the win great um, great great combination runaway foam i love it yeah, um let's go back to 94 Thanks. in uh <laughs> in uh 88 i guess they recorded this they recorded this in 88 right yeah. This album, um, 42288 in Burlington, they were playing new songs and Trey announced a song called Marijuana Hot Chocolate. And uh, the part of the bass line that Mike played was ended up being part of Foam. Um, so I think maybe they were pulling different pieces from different different jams, but I hope that Marijuana Hot Chocolate becomes a song soon. Maybe, maybe on the next album. What do you guys think? It, it, that's a song for dicks. There yeah, you go. True. True. Um, so what else, what comes next, Matt? What's the next song on this, this here album? Dinner and a movie. Uh, great, great song. Um, underplayed. If you ask me, 
Uh, what stuck out to me on this one, once again, the kick drum sound on it. Amazing. Just big, thumping, loud, round, um, you know, perfectly EQ'd. Uh, and this, you know, sticks out to me again. Um, I didn't, I never, I don't know why I never caught this before, but it sounds like in the middle of it, there's actually, there's a clip, there's like a segment where you hear people eating dinner in the background Yeah, and, yeah, and then, yeah. and then it goes to, there's a clip of a movie. And I wonder if anybody's ever figured out what movie that is that they dropped in, in the background. Yeah. Good question. I have no idea. I just I hear like the sound effects of the the people eating dinner. Yeah, and then yeah, and then there's like dialogue that's clearly from a movie. I don't know if they made yep. it up or if it's from a movie, a like like a Pink Floydish kind of thing where they like dropped in a part of a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult to hear, but it sounds like it's it's something there. Um, and then the only other thing I would I like about this, I I love how whenever they play it live uh, and they get to the last verse, everybody always does the ah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. The the runs in this song are dizzying. I mean, just like when you start to try to follow everybody, which is, of course, what you should do. You know, you, you listen to Trey and you hear Paige right under and you hear Mike going against it and you hear Fish running. It just, uh, it's it, it's immense. It's great and very fast piece of work. So, yeah, big fan of the song. Also, I agree that it's criminally underplayed. <laughs> criminally in that, they should be charged with crimes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they should be threatened with penalties for, <laughs> for their lack of performance of dinner in a movie. Yes. All right. You guys heard it here first. Come on. Uh, any member of Fish who wants to come on and talk about the making of this album, you're welcome to, but Jonathan will press charges uh, for not playing dinner in a movie. So that's I, the trade-off. I just <laughs> might write you a ticket is all, but you could choose ticket. not to pay it. Like, you know, you know, people do then you could then you could see someone with a ticket stub in their hand all right so the next song so you could make a convincing argument that i think that divided sky is fish my wife would make that argument um i don't know about you guys but this this song on this album is like the most gives me the most memories and maybe it actually was the song that i listened to the most on a uh on an album back in the day i don't really anymore but um man it, it serves as a strong foundation for for me what about you guys i think this is another one that is clearly a piece of fish's dna it's um this is combined with several of the other tracks on here and a couple other things i mean this is this is the basis for who and what fish is um it's also uh you know an absolute prototype for all the other live performances of this song um, I, I think it may be perfect, and yet it has been surpassed by other versions, which is weird. I mean, how do you surpass perfection? I think it's just simply by emphasizing things not previously emphasizing emphasized. So less rage, more delicacy, or more rage, extreme pregnant pauses, all of these things that you know of you know lean into the different strengths of which there are many in this song. Um, yeah, this song has taken me a lot of places over the years, and this version is perfectly good for doing that. I really love it. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I've shared in the past, this was the song that did it for me um, after, you know, get slowly getting into Fish, liking them, wanting them to check them out more and more. Uh, listening to Divided Sky is the one that just tore my brain apart. And um, I, uh, 
I love um, the recording of this. Uh, I never get sick of listening to Divided Sky. I never get sick of um, seeing it live. I never get sick of listening to it on the record. Anytime I get this out to listen to it, I don't necessarily listen to every side, um, but I'll usually throw on Divided Sky if I'm putting on any other sides as well. Um, I love the uh, the sound on here, the great percussion, uh, once again, all over this that they added to kind of layer it. There's a xylophone, or it might it might be a glockenspiel. I think it's a xylophone at the beginning, um, which almost gives it like a Springsteen-ish feeling, the way that he throws glockenspiel in, uh, over a lot of the songs, like Born to Run and stuff like that. Um, there's a tambourine in there as well. And the thing that stuck out to me when you get to the palindrome section there's uh, something that sounds like a like wooden or plastic blocks that's played in a very odd time, and it reminded me. It's almost exactly like that transition from Alumni Blues to And So to mm. Bed um, from the White yeah. Tape. That kind of blop, 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 um, you know percussive track that that links those two together. Um, and then the thing I noticed about this, and, and it'll come back later, is um, the jam is is fine, but live they found the dynamics a lot better. And this is a little bit more of just like a raging guitar solo uh, instead of being able to, to bring it down a little bit, build back up, find some of the beauty. Um, and I really love, you know, particularly once they got to the late 90s, how they found that delicate beauty and there's almost kind of like a melancholy about um about the jam sometimes that mm-hmm. eventually comes around and becomes really really happy that's that's missing from this part it's just it's almost more like you know joe satriani style guitar heroics um which is great but not what i what i necessarily look for in divided sky hey i think that's fair and i think um the i guess the the story the, there's the famous you know famous i guess famous for us um story a recollection from trey of the the chicago 94 version right during the the pause and the he was when he was floating above the crowd and tears coming down his face and stuff and you know there's like the songs about there's the stories about the songs origination with the rhombus and the mushrooms and and parts of it were taken from stuff that trey and his mom wrote together it's just like there's a lot of parts of this song that are just like very foundational to to the band and how they came together and and how they evolved so i I think the song evolved has evolved too you know what i mean just like in the early 90s versions were like just raging and they they became more kind of contemplative over time which is cool but this song is just i don't appreciate it I, i i will admit i don't appreciate it that much when i see it live but i should appreciate it more so i will try um, yes, you should. <laughs> I'm going to try. It's my wife's favorite song. And so I'm, whenever she's at the show with me, I, it's great. Um, but it just like, sometimes it feels like it's like 15 minutes that could be otherwise used. You know what I mean? Your wife you is know. a good and smart woman. You, you should know what be listening I mean, to though. her and you should stop digging this hole for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. All right. So anyway, um, yeah, so then we get into uh, the last couple of songs. We get we start out with David Bowie, um, which is obviously you know another one of these just core foundational fish songs, just a, a really important part of the repertoire. Um, 
I, I love the sound. The, the, there's like a really amazing room sound on the hi hat intro, um, as opposed to the live versions where you you know obviously you get the crowd and you get like a real close mic hi hat symbol. This makes you feel like you're kind of sneaking into the room to listen to them at the beginning, which which I always love when when you can get that kind of a sound. Um, I, I listened to this and what really stuck out was that quote from Trey at Coventry where he talked about his, how his early goal was to make music that pushed the rhythmic boundaries as far as possible while still allowing people to dance to it. And I think that this version brings that out because there's some double track guitars and stuff like that, that that just adds some texture to the, to the rhythm um, during the verses in particular really brings that out for me um and then the background noises during the jam um so once again as with divided sky it's not like you don't get this amazing huge dynamic build that you get in a lot of live versions and obviously there's no exploration like they'd have in a lot of the you know 94 to to 97 ish versions um but you get amazing guitar solo and just hilarious noises in the background like at one point it sounds like somebody's taking bong rips and there's like like laughing and screaming and like it's like it's really like theater theater of the mind uh kind of stuff um so uh, i i like it even for a very concise version of bowie um it's uh it's a standout um jonathan how about you i i think this composition on this is just mind-boggling um this it's hard to believe that he he thinks it's dance music i mean i can dance to it but i was trained under extreme circumstances in 94 <laughs> and 95 so uh but yeah this is a, a just like you said this goes right back to the fish dna thing um it's absolutely fundamental to who this band is and uh, for all the bummers that are inherent to the, the word Coventry, it's good to have heard Trey talk about that uh, at that time or at any time, really talk about the origins of this song and how I think it that's was. why he told the story twice, <laughs> just to make sure that it came through. Well, you know, he, he told a variation on the same story because the other time he was talking about the curtain with, uh, but he True. had to talk about the cabin and the thing. But anyways, uh, it is... It is, you know, the root of this music that we, you know, make podcasts about and other things. And to me, it's kind of hard to believe we actually have significant factions of the Fish audience who claim not to listen to or, in fact, to dislike the albums. I'd wager this is this one is a frequent exception to that, um, because this is this is who this band is. How could you not listen? How can you overlook this or worse, listen to it and discard it? Um, about the sound effects, Matt, I, I think they're weird and I think it's, it's interesting how liberal they are with them on this. And I think possibly it's a side effect of being in an an actual studio and having kind of more tracks than maybe they necessarily require to get their music captured. So they're, you know, they're playing around with it. Um, I don't think they, at least on this one, I don't know that they add or, but too much, but I don't think they take away either. So RJ, I, I think you like this song. <laughs> I do love this song. This this version on this album is longer than any version that's been played in 3.0. So that that's got that going for it. Ouch! Um, I know that was a that was a joke that that nobody got. Um, Ouch! The, 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 listening back, I'm like at one point, I'm like, is that a kazoo? Like I can almost, I definitely hear a dog like shaking with a collar on. Um, there's like there's all kinds of weird shit happening in there. The bong rips, all of it. Um, the one thing I just want to add, the the interview I mentioned with Ben Hunter, 
who the namesake of the album. Um, part, one thing he says in the interview is, as far as I'm concerned, Fish is still writing good songs and putting out good albums and playing good shows. And this was 2000. Um, so people should be happy they're evolving, not staying in this period forever. But let's face it, Bowie has a passion and verve that'll be hard for the band to ever match. So I thought that was kind of interesting. It's the only um, specific song that he talks about in that interview. So um, just kind of goes to that, the points that you guys made. Um, really awesome, awesome stuff and really weird. Just just bizarre, bizarre shit. If you're like 12 or 13 years old and you get this album like I was, you're like, man, what the hell's going on here? But um, then, then they get to Fluffhead, and that you know obviously isn't weird at all. Yeah, Fluffhead makes it all seem perfectly normal, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. But this is like totally different kind of composition, right? From, I mean, they're all different. Divided Sky and yeah, and it is. Bowie, but this seems more different to me. Going back, so I have some unresolved thoughts about this. Uh, partially beginning with the fact that it's tracked with the two titles, Fluffhead and Fluff's Travels. Like I, on the one hand, I'm all for it. Uh, I, I kind of think they should break it out more with a standalone Claude, Bundle of Joy, Arrival, and all of those things. I mean, I'm kind of kidding, <laughs> but I'm really not. Um, Trey wrote in his thesis for Goddard, uh, along with uh, you know the man who stepped into yesterday. He wrote, "quote I find my strongest skills lay in taking small bits and pieces that fail to stand on their own and designing a context in which they become purposeful." I think, uh, and so. That's the end of the quote. I I think that this album shows multiple examples of this strength coming to play. We have it here with Fluffhead Fluff's Travels, um, the expanded Divided Sky, which, as we know from the white tape, was a much, well, there was a lot less to it. Um, RJ, you mentioned the uh, marijuana hot chocolate foam uh, origins, if you will. I, you enjoy myself, myself probably started in the same way, maybe even portions of David Bowie. Later, he would do it with Gaiuti, My Friend, My Friend, and a, you know, probably a lot more than we even realize. Yeah. Uh, point being that this album is really where that element of Trey's composition comes through. It's really flooding into the fore, and uh, it kills. Also, before I hand this off... I really like the acoustic guitar on this and in Divided Sky, which you just didn't get live. Um, I, I like the choice to use it in the studio. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you said. I, it's it's hard for me to come up with unique things to say about Fluffhead. I mean, it's an, it's an epic composition, and I think it's obviously taken a really important place in Fish's history, um, you know, with the the Hampton return and everything like that. Um, the one thing that is funny, and I, I'd had this rattling around in my brain for a while, and I finally used this as an opportunity to, to lock it down, is that at a certain point, Trey started playing the intro differently. Um, and I was like... In my mind, he he had this. The way that he plays it now is just always how he played it live, and the the album was unique. And I went back and I listened and tracked it, and um, it actually started with the Hampton Return version. He played it differently, and he's played it that way every way since. Hmm. Um, uh, so yeah, on the uh, the album version, the way that they played it in 1.0, and they didn't play it at all in 2.0. It's a suspended uh, fourth. <laughs> Like that, and then in 3.0 he plays it with a suspended second. (laughs) 
It's brighter. Maybe he wanted to go for that, like, brighter bit of lilt. It's not easier, necessarily. It's just different. It's just a different choice. The reason I was saying it's different than, like, the rest of the songs on the album and is that there's, like, there's a few sections um, that just have a lot of, like, funk influence, which I think is cool, and you don't really hear that on the rest of the album until the, until the next song um, after this. But just, it's cool because there's just, man, there's so much there's so much variety in terms of what they're playing even on this album and i think if you look back at this album you might think like that it's sort of all similar because they were just at the very beginning but there's just a lot of variety and the this the different sections of fluffhead really bring that out for me yeah and then we uh then we get into contact which um is is great um it's uh it's charming and you know it's it's freaking contact and i, I love the the kids singing on the end kind of yeah no i think it's uh it's a great choice for the closing number of the album uh and i i the re when we get in we'll talk about you know the extra tracks again and we've been kind of joking about it one of the reasons i i consider just the original tracks and not the bonus stuff that was added later to be the album is I really feel like this is a strong closing number. And I feel like if you lop the other songs off, it's a very, it's a much stronger record. Um, you know, the other stuff is just kind of, it's filler and it's cool, but the sound fidelity is not great there. You know, there's parts where Trey's guitar is out of tune. It's just like, it's, it's an interesting look at early live fish, but as far as what they crafted in the studio, this, this wraps it up really well. And between the children's, voices and and all the way that it fades out at the end um which by the way on the on the 2012 version is about a minute longer than the uh the the older version um it feels like it's so cinematic to me and it's like a mo- at the end of a movie where you the camera just sort of like floats up into the clouds and you back away from the action and you're sort of you're leaving the story you're leaving this world things are still going on there but you know this whimsical kind of world that they've just taken you through for 10 tracks you you kind of you back out i almost see like if you can imagine like the end of um the movie Roger Rabbit at the end, like everybody oh, goes yeah. off into cartoon land and the, the camera backs out into the real world and you're like, okay, bye-bye everyone. Like that to me right. is, is contact. And that's the end of the album for, for me. I think that's fair. I think there's like some, this is like a more mature version of, of Minkin, you know, from the white tape. Like you hear some of that at the end with like yeah. some of the sound effects and the weirdness. And this is just like a little bit more of a, Yeah. I mean, maybe the what you're describing in terms of the cinematic perspective there, you know, it's possible that that was what Mike was thinking, right? Given his interest in, in cinematography and all that. So maybe that's yeah, the way I, he was thinking about it. We should ask him sometime. Honestly, before this recording, I had never thought of this as the end of the album because I'd never listened to it without it. So the, you make a good point, Matt. And I, I do think that that makes sense, but I acknowledge for, and agree that you make a very good point. And I, and, exactly. I, and, and by the way, this, this, this has nothing to do with the record release way before that. I, I, I thought of it the same way. Cause I knew the story that they had added these other tracks. And so I always focused on the, you know, the core, the album as they created it. All right. So the bonus tracks, <laughs> part of the, part of the album for real fans, um, was <laughs> three live tracks, one with Ritray has his guitar out of tune and plays for 25 minutes and then, and then two tracks with a lot of screaming from 88, which is, you know, to be fair, a great, great additions all around. <laughs> um, the Union Federal is a little bit more, it just, it, the thing about it is it's like, a, what, 24 or 25 minutes. It's, it's from one of the, you know, things where they locked themselves in a room and took drugs or whatever. Um, 
and <laughs> it sounds like people playing music on drugs, which is cool. Um, but the it starts off so like cacophonous, but then there are a couple segments in there that I think are pretty cool. But um, I don't think that these make it, you know, a great album. <laughs> I think I don't, I don't think they add much to the album actually. But I just assume that they're part of the album. Um, I don't know, Jonathan. Did you did you sit in a, a dark room and take drugs while listening to this drug music? That I would never admit to that on the public internets. Um, <laughs> but I will say we, I really want to publicly speaking of public internets, thank the Electra division of a major media corporation for seeing to it that we got this 25 minute union federal, this slab of psychedelia plus sanity and Iculus. Um, I, I don't want to say that it sounds like drug music, but it, it sounds like drug music. Um, which is not a bad thing in my book. Uh, it's a, as you said, this is purportedly from an Okipa ceremony, and uh, they just uh, it, it wrinkles my brain listening to this even today. I mean, it's been almost almost thirty years since I first heard it, and I mean, it makes me feel old to say out loud. But um, yes, like it's six minutes in. It's, it you're right, it's a little cacophonous, not very orderly at first. But about six minutes in, they just go into full liftoff, and it's just there are modes and changes and different kinds of tempo shifts and all these kinds of things. I could do. I could probably do a whole episode on this jam. I won't. Um, and sanity mm-hmm. and Iculus, they're hilarious for one. And they really beautifully round out the whole thing for me. I think, you know, we're talking, or I've been talking about this fish DNA thing. And that's kind of my biggest takeaway of this whole thing is that, you know, fish fans who reject albums are deluding themselves when they claim there's no value in them. This album in particular is augmented by these bonus tracks, but as, you know, a great picture of foundational fish this whole thing including the tracks that matt doesn't like are their dna uh, all the pieces are here you've got f- comedy fish you've got complex compositions you've got soaring guitars you've got dense interweaving you've got uh, you got everything you got big jams uh, you may not see in this album the band that fish has become today but you can see by looking at fish today the people who made this album it's still in them and it informs everything they do yeah union union federal's uh interesting because you're right i mean they do get to a couple of places with very beautiful jams very interesting jams um there's like a section around 15 minutes or so where the drums drop out and right before and right after that there's some really interesting stuff but the thing that stuck out to me is that like there's some jamming on here that sounds like it's taken straight out of 1994 Um, which shows you, you know, how much they were working towards that sound way earlier, though, not putting it out on stage. Right. I mean, they were, they were working on this stuff. They were being very careful. They weren't necessarily showing it to the world, but also that kind of informs like what a big risk it was for them, not to, that it started happening on stage, but that they finally felt comfortable enough to expose what they were doing behind closed doors to the world and say, you know what, this is crazy. It, some of it is, is like non-musical at times, but we should do it on stage in front of thousands of people just 
to take a risk. And I think that kind of sums up what, what they've tried to do with their whole career. So to that end, you know, it is part of that core DNA. And if you want to look at it that way, it's um, it, it gives you that flavor beyond the compositions and the work they put in in the studio to give you an idea of, you know, what they what, what they were up to at that point. Amen. city without its music. The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. If you've made it this far, you will know the hashtag #FishDNA, which is uh, which is this <laughs> year's which is this year's micro jam. So thanks, thanks, Jonathan. Um, yeah, this is this is great. Um, <laughs> I like going back to these albums. Um, I just all I can hear in every track over and over is just piano, like really loud and awesome piano. I don't know. I think that might just be me, but. Um, I was very surprised, I guess, when I went back to it. And it might be because I was listening to a different version and that was better than the crappy version I used to listen to or whatever. But um, yeah, really awesome, really awesome journey back back in time. And to your point, Jonathan, about, you know, people not listening to Fish albums, um, maybe they should, you know? Maybe more people should go back and listen to Fish albums. I like all the albums. I mean, I like most of the albums. Um Especially the ones like the early, you know, four or five. 
Um, but maybe that's just because it's they're so important in my own journey. But um, this has been fun, and, and maybe we should do another one of these um, backtracking soon. What do you guys do think? They ha- do they have more albums? I think there was one other one after this round room. S- something grass, grass boy, grass, something like that. <laughs> grass, grass, grass man. Um, grass man. Yeah, we're gonna do it. We're gonna do that one other fish album at some point. Um, all right, guys. What else? What else do we want to tell the people besides thank you for listening and and thank you for um, bearing bearing with our brilliance and our nonsense? Ridiculous. He wrote the fucking book, man. All right, everybody. We'll see you back here. Um, we'll see you back here in a couple of weeks. Keep on rocking. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series about how they died, why they died. And while we're still talking about them so long after... It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments. The ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember. The ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now.